I was just settling in. I thought we were going to hear four or five more of them. Right? <clears throat> All right, I was just thinking in my mind and heart about where we are in the book of Ephesians. And remember, we never want to miss the forest for the trees and vice versa. But just remember uh, the verse of Scripture, chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now again, chapters 1 through 3 are indicatives. God's done this, 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 numerous things all the way through three chapters of what the Lord God has accomplished. And then that incredible doxology, now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. To Him be glory in the church through Christ Jesus. And then, after God has worked in us, it's always His goal to work through us, right? And so we're called by God to live out uh, those uh, commands. Again, chapters 1 through 3, that's the indicatives of what God has done in us, for us. But when you get to chapter 4, it's the applicational part of Ephesians about how we should actually live our lives, and uh, believe it or not, it even touches on slaves and masters. It even touches on the mundane things of life where we're actually living these things out. I remember being in uh, college, in junior college, playing some basketball and enjoying college life. But the fact is I went to a school that was Pentecostal in its persuasion. That's why I'm kind of crazy as a Baptist, right? No, seriously. The Pentecostal doctrine was that if you were filled with the Spirit, you would speak in tongues. That would be the manifestation uh, to them if you uh, had the Spirit. Of course, many neo-charismatics and Pentecostals believe that you get the Spirit as a second work of grace. You had to pray for that. and So I was... Fellow students of mine and friends would actually sweat over the fact that they didn't feel like they had been filled with the Spirit. And, of course, I would push back and challenge them. Well, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit biblically? Show me a text that says that to be filled with the Spirit, <clears throat> speaking in tongues, would be evidence of it. Show me from the Bible. I said, but Ephesians 5 talks about being filled with the Spirit, but these are normal things lived out in life, like thanksgiving. Isn't that pretty simple? You know, like being thankful to the Lord. That's an evidence you're filled with the Spirit. How about singing, making melody? Uh, so I, I don't want you to miss the fact that God has worked in you and the Spirit of God lives in you and the manifestation of the Spirit living in you will result in certain things. And speaking in tongues is not one of the ones given here. What is given is the simple things of living out life together in the body of Christ. And so, keep that in mind. And again, chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, it is the final unit of domestic relationships. We started with husband and wife, wife-husband. We went through parent-child, child-parent. And then now we arrive at really a vocational life for them at the time, culturally, and we'll make some application at the end 
I'll give you a few things for employees to consider and for employers. But as we said this morning, don't skip over it too fast to run straight to the employer-employee because there's way more to it than meets the eye. And that's why we spent so much time this morning discussing uh, a summary of what the Bible says about slaves and masters. So, again, let's read it. Bondservants. Douloi is the word in the Greek. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. With a sincere heart. Three different times he's going to use a phrase similar to this next one. As you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. There it is again, and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. Masters. Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Okay? So your outline of your bulletin, if you have it tonight, let's just breeze through that. First, slaves are called by God, commanded by God to obey your masters. So servants are to be subject to who? Their masters. And I would again remind you that in the context here, It is a result of being filled with the Spirit of God. We are to subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Remember 521 starts this particular unit together. We remember wives are to be subject to their husbands. How? In the fear. Same terminology. In the fear of Christ. Children are to subject themselves to the parents in the fear of Christ. And here slaves are to be in subjection to their masters. How? Same way. In the fear of Christ. Uh, We miss a lot if we jump straight to UPS. Right? It's not first grounded in an employee-employer relationship. If we stop and consider what Paul is saying culturally at that particular time, this is a profound statement. It's powerful. He is addressing slaves as full members of the church of the living God who actually have a conscious moral obligation to God that is lived out before a master. And then vice versa, correct? So he addresses them as people who are filled with the Spirit. So historically, culturally, it's remarkable that Paul would even address slaves at all. But that's what he's doing. He uses the plural form of kurios when it says earthly masters. In the Greek, it is lords, plural. Not capital L, Yahweh, but earthly masters. So he addresses them uh, in the plural form, plural form of here are your earthly lords or your masters. It says according to the flesh, that is earthly masters. So there's a recognition of social structure. There's a recognition of social status. And Paul was not a social re-engineering maniac who is trying to deconstruct culture or society. He recognized both bond and free, that they were one in Christ Jesus, and he did not intentionally undermine a social structure. He recognized that the gospel could change people no matter what structure 
And no matter what social class they're in, the gospel can transform lives. And this is what Paul's intention was. It doesn't mean that Paul is affirming in the, in the sense of saying, hey, this has biblical justification that slavery should exist. That's not what Paul is saying. He is saying that the gospel can change everything. It can change structure. It can change social structure. So you obey, the Bible says, your fleshly lords. There is also a limitation on the structure. It's limited to the earthly or the mundane, right? Why is that? Because no earthly master has the right to bind or dictate the spiritual leanings of a servant of God. And that's why Paul would say it like he says it. In other words, there's a difference between an earthly master and the master, right? So, again, there is a limit. There's limitations to this. But otherwise, he wouldn't say earthly master versus the master who is in heaven. Okay? So, slaves, obey your masters. And then let's ask a couple of questions. How should slaves obey their masters? The Bible says with fear and trembling. So what does that mean? Does that mean that if you, uh, in this particular time frame, if they had a master and they were slaves, that their response should be that they tremble before the master? Does it mean that they should be scared when they had a master? Well, again, the expression fear and trembling is a Pauline expression that means your life lived out before God. Okay? <laughs> Wives live out their calling, how? In the fear of Christ. Does that mean they're supposed to be afraid of their husbands? No, not at all. So we have to stay in context and find out what those words and phrases mean. So Paul says in another place, Philippians 2, work out your own salvation in, help me out, fear and trembling. So what is Paul saying? Well, he's reminding us, that all of life is lived out before the Lord. That expression, fear and trembling, is, is pointed toward our respect and reverence to Christ as we live out our role, whether it's a husband, a wife, or a parent, or a child, or a slave, or a master. We're called by God to live in such a way with fear and trembling. So in this sense, the broad and narrow context of obey your masters out of fear and reverence means before God. That's how we're to live before them. We have confidence in this particular interpretation. Why is that the case? Glad you ask. All right. Colossians. Flip over there. Sister Epistle. Colossians 3. Listen to the complementary parallel and how it's worded for fear and trembling. And you'll see what I mean. Colossians 3.22. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Okay? That would be the parallel and the equivalent to fear and trembling. That, there it is right before us. So, next, not only do they do it with fear and trembling, next they are to obey with sincerity of heart as we would Christ. Do you see it? With a sincere heart as you would Christ. Christ. So this means that servants were to obey their masters in a way that exudes a conscientious sincerity, be, sincerity because it wasn't ultimately the earthly master himself, but who? But Christ. Same principle given regarding husbands and wives. How are wives supposed to submit? 
as to, say it, help me out tonight. Yeah, as to the Lord. Same principle that we have here. The sincerity is first and foremost as you would be sincere toward Christ. And then it comes over to fulfilling their role as a servant. The same principle, again, is given to husbands and wives. Her submission is ultimately submission to the Lord. And here, as servants conduct themselves with sincere obedience, they are doing so first and foremost before Christ the Lord. In this parallel passage, again, look at Colossians verse 17 of chapter 3. The Bible says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks. So whatever we're doing, if it's vocationally here or as a servant or whatever it might be, we're to do everything in the name of Christ. And then verse 22 again, the Bible says, Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Next, they are to obey with integrity. The scripture says, not by way of eye service. What does that mean? They're not to obey merely with eye service. Don't act like you're working hard only when the boss is around. Uh-oh, maybe we're in trouble. Don't act like you're working hard only when you're being watched. Don't sit around and play with your phone, kids, and then hear the master coming and hide your phone and try to go back to work. Some of you adults guilty? Uh-huh. Do your work with integrity, not simply with eye service or as man pleasers. What does that mean? You want to hear a colloquial phrase that would encompass this man pleasers? Stop kissing up. Right? That's the translation, really. Do your work in a way that you're not simply trying to curry favor with your master. Why? Because we're ultimately slaves of Christ. We ultimately belong to him. And your life and job are all lived out before the Lord. Remember, Coram Deo. We're living it out before the Lord. You let the results of the gospel... By the way, when I say that, I'm convicted for you and me, right? Let the results of the gospel, if we say the gospel has changed us, then let the results of the gospel permeate the way that you work, the way that you live your life. Watch this. Look what the text says. Doing the will of God from the heart. Doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, your life as a slave before Christ, leads you to perform certain duties. You're to serve with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. You serve with a glad and an affectionate heart. And again, when you pour yourself out like this, again, who is it to? It is before the Lord. Okay? So that's how you are to obey as slaves, is what Paul says. And then why should slaves obey their masters? I think uh, this is pretty revolutionary too because not only does he address slaves in the context of the church family, but then he's going to talk about a reward. He's going to talk about how that God will give back to you. Why should slaves obey their masters? Verse 8 tells you, knowing that whatever good anyone does, 
This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. So serve knowing that the Lord himself will be the one who rewards them. Question. Was it highly possible in this culture that Paul lived, as a, that Paul lived in as a slave, you're going to do a lot of good deeds and things that will go unnoticed? Was it highly possible? I mean, just think about it. Have you ever noticed in church life that nobody noticed? Hello? How many times have you walked off or thought about, man, I did all this at the church and nobody noticed me? Right? Have you ever noticed that no one noticed? Is it possible in this context that their obedience and their goodwill and their favor, goodwill, would go unrewarded? And the answer to that is absolutely. Do good deeds go unnoticed between parents and children sometimes? <laughs> Somebody spoke up. Uh, do good deeds go unnoticed between husbands and wives sometimes? You ever feel like your spouse didn't notice? Did that bother you? Don't lie to me, right? Don't look at me so spiritual either. I can tell. Yes. Paul says, well, here's what our response would be. Sometimes in church life, we would say something like this. Well, I won't do that anymore. It went unnoticed. Well, how about in your marriage life? Well, they took that for granted. No one noticed. I'm not going to do that anymore. What would Paul say? Paul would say, no, you keep doing that. You keep doing exactly what is right. The Lord notices. That's what he's saying. He lets them know that both recompense and reward does not depend on social status. Uh, Romans 14 is a great place to look at this. You can stay where you are. Just listen to Romans 14, 10 through 12. The Bible says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment bar of God. Wow. No matter what your status is, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Does that not change and revolutionize the way you think about living for the Lord? Because all of us are going to stand before the Lord. So remember that the one you will ultimately stand before is not your earthly master. But the God of eternity, the master of the universe, he sees. So the unnoticed good deeds will have a reward from your master. And uh, now he's going to address the masters. Okay? Verse 9. We, we tend to think, wow, he gives three or four verses to servants, but he only gives one to masters. But this one is hard-hitting. Okay? Listen to what the scripture says. Masters do the same thing. So... Masters, treat your slaves how? Properly. Masters, do the same thing, and then listen to the text, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So, the Bible would tell us here that um, how should masters treat their slaves? Masters are to do the same things to them. Now think about what we've learned. Uh, you can't adequately soak the statement in 
in a free society like we live in, but just think about what Paul is saying. You as a master, you need to have the same attitude, the same actions, and the same mark of the sphere that you live in, and that ought to mark your life, right? Just like the slaves are in response to you as unto the Lord, you yourself as, an, as the master ought to have the same conduct, the same actions, the same attitudes within the sphere that God has placed you in. There's no doubt that a master is in a different status socially than a slave. But he's saying, check those words out, look again. Do the same to them. Live your life in the sphere where God has placed you with fear and trembling before God. Remember? That's part of the same thing. Do the same to them. He's, he, in other words, he's not repeating all of those things. He just gives one statement. All that the slaves did in response to you, you are to do in response to them. Have an attitude of sincerity toward Christ, which demands that you treat your slaves with respect. Don't just give them things uh, to in turn get back from them. And do so with integrity because when you treat your slaves this way, you're doing what? The will of God. Just as a slave is doing the will of God when he obeys his master, the master is doing the will of God when he respects his slaves. Serve the Lord in, the, in a way that you treat your slaves with goodwill, with favor, and affection. Not even any of the ancient philosophers, not any of the ancient humanitarians in ancient Greece ever told masters to treat their slaves like Paul did. Okay? So, this is important. Um, he says, stop the threats. What could this mean? Uh, if, if we take this and talk about contemporary society, uh, any of you ever been threatened by a master? I threaten Don all the time. Right? But I'm just joking with Don, right? Uh, am I joking with him, Blake? No, I'm not. Blake wants me to be not joking with him. So, but still, Peter O'Brien, great scholar, <clears throat> deals with a list of what some of these threats would have been. Now, think about this. That's not the same social structure we live in. But the worst scenarios would have been a threatening of beatings, a threatening of sexual harassment, or the selling of members of the family. This is pretty serious stuff. And Paul says to the Christian masters, give up the threat. Throw away, here's a better way of saying it, the pry bar that you are using and the leverage you're using to force your slaves to do certain things. And instead, uh, understand that has no place in Christian life. If you've been transformed by the gospel, then give up your threats. Then Paul gives us this motivation which is profound. Why should masters treat their slaves properly? The Bible says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours. Again, what did we emphasize this morning? Equality between a slave and a master. Why? Because there's one Lord and we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so Christian slaves and Christian masters have the same Lord. No matter what your social status, you are all your fellow slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. So masters, you have a master. Slaves, you have a master. And your ultimate master is not the guy on earth that tells you what to do. Your ultimate master is the one who is in heaven. 
You share the same master, no matter what your status, and he's the Lord. At the bar of judgment, every man, man will stand there alone. Again, Romans 14. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. At the bar of judgment, every man will stand there alone. So the judge will have no favoritism, this text says. No partiality. Your, your social status on earth will make absolutely no difference when you stand before the Lord and the judgment of God. This will not be a judgment unto loss of salvation, right? This will be a judgment of works or rewards or loss of reward. This, surprise, this actually applies universally, doesn't it? doesn't matter who we are, what you are, how much money you make or how much you didn't make. All of us are going to stand before the judgment bar of God and give an account of every deed done in the flesh, good or bad. That's what the Bible says. And there is going to be absolutely no partiality with God at the judgment bar. So it is the justice of God at the judgment that brings ultimate equality with all people. Right? Think about how strong this is. It doesn't matter if you were the president of the U.S. It doesn't matter if you were uh, the, the whatever vocation or whatever social status you want to bring forward... When it comes to standing before the judgment seat of Christ, that's not going to matter one bit. It's not going to matter. Uh, so, let me give you three principles for Christian employees. You ready? You don't have this in your bulletin, so write these down. Young people, I'm going to give you a quiz at the end and make sure you know them, right? For the Christian employee, quickly. First, Christian employees should respect the authority structure. All uh, right. Parentheses, supervisors, managers, etc., regardless of whether the person in charge is respectful, decent, or even incompetent. Uh oh. Right? Let's be honest, as you grow as a Christian, God often sharpens our minds, He grants us knowledge, He grants us understanding, and even He grants us skill. In our vocation. And it's very easy as a Christian employee to be in a position where you see someone who is above you. They make more money than you. And they have more responsibilities than you do. And you start to think, you know what? I can do a better job than that person. Uh-oh. This person doesn't show me any respect and doesn't esteem my work and they don't recognize me. And at the end of the day, he or she is absolutely incompetent. What would the Bible have you do? It would have you respect the authority structure even if you don't like it. That's kind of hard at times because we, we as believers, sometimes we can get the wrong understanding because we do see work differently. We, we do start to look at the situation in a business and say, well, you know, if, if you just did this in a Christ-like manner, then you'd be better off. I need to be in your position and you need to be in mine. Well... The Bible would not allow us to do that in ethics, okay? So, which means you have no right to badmouth your supervisor or your manager. <clears throat> Y'all looking at me kind of funny. As, believer, as a believer, you have no right to gossip and to backbite and to undermine those who are over you. 
maybe that doesn't sound good to hear, but it's right. Again, this is about the gospel. This is about your life being changed by Christ. This is about the biblical ethic of what the Lord asks us to do. So we as believers should be the best employees and the most respectful, respectful even among those we don't particularly appreciate. I'm not saying that deep down you have to appreciate the person. But I am saying that it would be wrong to backbite, to gossip, uh, to seek to undermine when you know full well that that structure has been set for a particular purpose. Okay? Everybody got that one? Respect the structure and the authority. And in our world, if we're talking about employee, employer, that would mean supervisors and managers. You respect that. The one in charge, uh, you do so out of respect first for the Lord. Second, we should work in the fear of the Lord, aware of the presence of the Lord and his watchful eye. Okay? We ought to do our work as unto Christ. That's true if you're working at Culver's. Young people, I think you ought to go to work at Whataburger, right? And give me a discount when I come in. No, I'm kidding. I mean, seriously, we, we hold down jobs as teenagers, and it, it'd be really easy for us to think, you know what, I'm just making a few bucks going through high school. Well, I'm telling you, that's going to make a difference when you move out of high school and when you go to college and when you land a job. Natalie and I saw this firsthand in seminary. Did we not? We would, we would leave the gospel ghetto in the evenings on Sunday, and we would go to church. And we were one of the only couples that went to church on Sunday night. And you know what my thoughts were? Those guys are going to lead churches one day. And they're going to expect their people to come when the word is preached. And they never went to church ever on a Sunday night. You say, that's not a big deal. Well, to me it was. It was a big deal to me. And so you're setting a standard now of how your life will be in the future. And it's very, very important that you consider this for a moment. We are to do our best work. No matter what your age is and no matter what you're doing. Three different times in this passage, he reiterates it. Three different times. As to Christ... As slaves to Christ, as to the Lord, right? That's important. Your work is your calling. That's part of your calling. And it's unto the Lord. God's will in your life is for you to work hard. We don't need to apologize for that today. It's God's will that we all work hard. Uh, if you steal hours from your employer, it's a sin. Amen? If you steal hours, it's a sin. Biblical ethics would say to us, if you're on the clock, here's something novel. Work. Right? If you're on the clock, work. All right, number three. Christian employees should work with honesty, sincerity, and integrity. They should know that their work attitude, work ethic, will be judged mental material on one day in the future. Okay? All of your life, I'm telling you, the Bible doesn't lie at this point. It's absolutely truth. We're going to give an account, and I think your work ethic is going to be judgment day material. It is. So whatever your sphere, if you work in a Christian organization, if you work in a secular organization, um, the calling is plain and straightforward, work with honesty, work with integrity. What your boss sees 
is really what he gets. Amen? Work with sincerity. That word derives from the word wax or an imprint. It is to be one thing when he is around. It's to be another thing when he's out. No, that shouldn't be the case. The most grievous thing to hear, in my understanding, is to find out that someone has fallen away from the faith. I don't like to ever hear that. Would you not all agree? Second to that, in my understanding, is for someone to come up to the pastor and say, you wouldn't believe how so-and-so work, acts on the, at the workplace. It's just not a good example, is it? It's just not. For us to say we believe and say that we maintain biblical ethics and then to act different in a place of vocation dishonors the Lord. All right? So you employees feel good that I'm stopping at that point? All of us, right? All right, how about this? Let me give you just a few for employers, okay? First, Christian employers cannot let the fact that they are boss go to their heads because they are not boss, ultimately. Christ is, okay? We have this crooked sense in our fallen nature, and we like to be in charge. We do. This happens often. Well, put me in charge. And when we do get in charge, it, ta- it truly takes a godly, sanctified man not to let being in charge go right to his head and turn him into an, to an old tyrant. And we know this is the case, don't we? So often. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. Christian employers should remember that just because you are the boss doesn't actually mean that you are the real boss. Okay? If we take this seriously then we realize that we only have one true boss, one true master, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And as an employer, we need to remember this. We need to remember that we may be in a place or position of authority, but ultimately Christ is our authority. We we lean upon him and we treat others the way Christ would have us treat them. Second, Christian employers must treat their employees with respect. We should not abuse our authority position by demeaning those who work under us. It's destructive to the gospel witness for you to tell your employees that you are a Christian and you operate according to biblical principles and you turn around and treat them, right? Nothing less than the way the carnal world would treat them with an abuse of position and power. We can't let that happen. All right. Third, Christian employers must conduct themselves in the utmost integrity and honesty in all their business and interpersonal dealings with their employees. We ought to take the lead in the workplace as being slaves to Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Amen? If you're an employer, if you own the business, if you run the business, is this not true, right? We should exemplify the Christian principle that we profess. In other words, put your... Life where your talk is, right? How do we used to say it? Walk the walk, not just talk the talk. And then finally, Christian employers must remember that their work ethic, their attitude, and their conduct will be judgment day material. You're not going to get off the hook either. It's not going to be like Jesus has you walk up and he says, Wow, you were a supervisor. You get to skip the evaluation, right? Oh, you were a CEO? No problem. 
God is not going to say, well, I was a CEO of sorts. Just move right along. No, that's not going to happen. Not going to happen, folks. It will not work that way. In either case, employee or employer, that which we do from 9 to 5 will be judgment day material. God takes work seriously. And Christians in the workplace need the power of the Spirit, don't we? And I'm not telling you it's easy. We need the power of the Holy Spirit of God in the workplace. Why? Because we're slaves of Christ. And if you struggle in some of these areas, as an employee or as an employer, and the Spirit of God has placed His finger on on an area of your life, here's what we ought to do. Take it to the cross. Ask God for forgiveness. And we need fresh empowerment from the Holy Spirit of God. No matter your status in the workforce, we are first and foremost slaves of Christ. Amen? In the workforce, no matter who you are, what you do, you are first and foremost a slave of Christ. You've been bought with a price. You are His possession. And so when you are, it ought to make a difference in whatever you do in life. No matter what sphere. Boss or servant. Employer or employee. Someone who's over people. Someone who's not over people. Under people. Whatever that may be. Whatever sphere. Just remember, you are a slave to Christ. Okay? That wasn't too bad, was it? I hope you wrote some of those things down. Any uh, questions tonight? I know Jason's got me on camera, so this will be... If you ask a question, you're going to be on camera. All right? Your own can, camera, what is it called? Yeah, yeah, something like that. From this morning or tonight, any questions you may have? Because we're moving into finally, therefore, brothers, be strong in the Lord. And some of you are so glad that we're going to end Ephesians, but it won't happen Sunday. Okay? We got a lot of armor to talk about, we got spiritual warfare to talk about, and that's going to be a great subject. Any questions? All right. Yes, sir, Jonathan. Yes. Yeah. I think it would go back to how I explained it. Fear and trembling would not be being afraid of of your employer or, in your case, Cox Hospital, whatever that may be. Um, but reverence would be, we reverence the Lord. Yes, and, and I do think that even then it's not saying that we are to shake in our shoes before the Lord. Uh, now sometimes in Scripture when it says fear the Lord, we don't want to dumb that down because it really does mean you need to be afraid, right? But in this case, I think it's reverential respect and honor to the Lord that manifests itself by terminology such as fear and trembling. So yes, it, it is translated reverence. And, and I think it's the same thing. Good question. Any others? Everybody good? All right, you kids, y'all write down. Oh, Marion said yes, she's got it down. All right. I know this is may seem like something you didn't think you would ever hear from a pastor talking about how we should respond. But folks, we need to hear this. Why? Because the gospel should affect every area of life. 
And I hope and pray that you'll take it seriously. It even, even affects church life, right? There's mutual respect and admonition that we all have as staff. And I work in a work environment too, right? And it's not always easy. Uh, some people have said, boy, I'd love to work at the church. And we say, boy, you just don't know, right? <laughs> but we are blessed by the Lord to have such a great staff. But, but we are called by God to treat each other. The way this text says. We don't get a pass on it. All right? Any others? Okay, only one question. Don, you wanted to say something? Yes, we've placed in the commons, and you didn't come in that way tonight. Most of you realize that normally on the second Sunday we do outreach. We did have a number of visitors today, and we have a number of ones from past weeks. So if you would like to go through the commons and grab one of those, in my understanding, the best way I think you could handle it, if you see a name of someone who visited your Sunday school class and you're a member of that class, snatch it up, okay? Go see them. Uh, we've been blessed recently by lots and lots of folks visiting. And there's nothing wrong, even in our society, in our culture, with knocking on the door. Yes, sir? Yeah, we call that ministry need visits or calls. So if you don't feel as comfortable just going to a door and knocking on a door of a prospect who came to church, then there are ministry need visits that could be made. And uh, I know that would be greatly appreciated as well. You know, let's be honest. When you go, they expect the pastor to come. Many, many times that's the way it really is. But when you show up, it speaks so much to that particular person that you care and you've reached out to them and so it's all of our responsibilities in many ways to do that so in the commons you'll see that set up as you leave today okay you can uh, Nat and I have done this numerous times on the second Sunday night we take a picture of the card filled out and we send it to Don or you can turn it in next Sunday to him after the week's over you can go anytime during the week or check on them and just let us know where did that ball come from? Oh, yeah, playing ball in church while the preacher's preaching. I see. Yeah, y'all don't y'all can't see this down here, but it caught my eye. Yeah. Now I will say this: it is red and black for the dogs tomorrow night. So David, you know, you picked on me about you know this TCU up here on the printed stuff well there's a red and black ball down here so maybe the tide has turned all right all right okay anything else tonight anything else Don uh how's Natasha doing Elsie Chicago for boy she's gone from coast to coast huh yeah so she's in Chicago for rehab Expecting a full recovery? Well, praise the Lord. Well, thank you, Elsie. We've all been praying, and we're, that's, a, that's a huge blessing. All right. Uh, I know Ron Young has been moved 
or will be moved Monday to a long-term memory care. And I can't remember what Elaine said, but please pray for Ron. Uh, we've got a lot of folks sick. Uh, Natalie, Betty Sue's sick. Uh, Mayor Tafley's sick. Who else did you say back there, Marianne? Verna Craig. We've got some folks who, I don't know if it's second round of third, fifth, 15th round of COVID, <laughs> what it is. But we've got a lot of sickness going on, so pray for them. All right? Okay, no invitation tonight. As Spurgeon once said, go out and live what you've heard. Okay? Let's pray. Lord God, help us to honor you in, in, uh, in our lives. And thank you for our church family. And I know that, um, Lord, this is as practical as you can possibly get when it comes to living out our faith. But, Father, we know that the gospel has touched every corner of our lives every sphere, and as Colossians 3.17 reminds us, whatever we do, we do in word or deed. And Father, we know that encompasses everything. Whatever we do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, help us do that. In your name we pray. Amen.